Thanks, Brent. Thanks, family. You can take a seat. <clears throat> and like Brent mentioned earlier, uh, family, obviously it's great to see you. I love spending time with you. And if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're, we're really happy to have you spending this time with us. Uh, it's, it's a good weekend to visit on a 96. There's more space to spread out and be socially distant if you need to be. Uh, but we're really glad that you're here. Let's pray, and uh, then we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for allowing us, uh, for gifting us another day of life. We thank you for the privilege of spending a day with your family. Uh, more importantly, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as a family and just submit ourselves, humble ourselves to your voice. We want to be formed by your voice. We know our identity is in what you say about us. Our purpose is found in what you say about us. Our joy, our gladness, everything, everything for life is found in what you have done and what you have to speak over us. So, Father, give us humility to receive your word, and again, you've given us your spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Um, allow us to receive the word with humility and to respond with humility, that our hearts would be warmed by your grace, Father, and that in responding to your word, we would see life. Uh, we would see the beauty of the gospel formed in us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, our series theme is Gospel Formed. We're pressing into 1 Corinthians. And um, if you've been around for a few weeks, you know that our theme is Becoming Who We Are, A United Family in a Fractured City. Last week, we talked a little bit about why we exist as a family. We are, we are God's family, God's people. We exist to be a culture of light in a culture of darkness. Our family exists here to be a culture of life in a culture of death. We exist to be, we exist for the Father's fame. We exist for the good of those not yet adopted into the family. This is not about us here. And we exist to be advocates of justice and advocates of mercy. Advocates, I'm sorry, practitioners of justice and practitioners of mercy in a culture, in a world that is uh, systemically unjust globally and systemically merciless. We live in a merciless world. But the culture of God's family is radically countercultural. It's different than this world. Last week, what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is this becoming who we are, that united family in a fractured city, becoming who we are happens as we take a high view of the church and a low or humble view of self. And today, it's not going to sound too different. I'll explain that in a moment. But today, here's kind of the sermon summary. Up front for 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Brent just read for us, becoming who we are happens as our submission to the Father's voice cultivates a humble posture in our regard for three things, for our church leaders, for ourselves, and in, re in our regard for correction that is sent our way. In other words, we will be a united family in a fractured city only when our submission to the Father and His voice cultivates a humble posture in our hearts so that we regard church leaders and we regard ourselves and we regard correction with humility and not with pride. Now let me just show you where I get that from the text so that you see I'm not just making it up. Uh, we see in verse 6, right in the heart of the passage, we see two purpose statements uh, we know their purpose statements because they begin with the word that. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, I'm writing this piece of the letter to you so that, and here's kind of the, the purpose he's aiming for. Here's the first one. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Well, he's talking about the Scriptures. Whenever Paul says what's written down, he's talking about the Scripture. So what's written down in the Scriptures? What's written there? Our Father's voice. Our Father's voice has been heard and recorded for us in the Scriptures. And so Paul's saying, look, I want you to learn that as, as our Father's family, we don't go beyond our Dad's voice. Uh, but they were. And what I mean by that is our Father's voice speaks authoritatively over us and gives us identity and purpose and meaning, all of these important things. Uh, but if we're not listening to our Father's voice, there's a vacuum there, and the vacuum will be filled. We will be formed by someone's voice, whether it's the Father's or our own or the culture's voice. And so we will be formed by something. And Paul's saying, you guys are. You're not formed by the gospel. You're formed by, formed by the culture or by your own pride. 
And I, I need to teach you not to go beyond your father's authoritative voice over you, okay? Now, the second purpose statement also in verse 6 says that none of you may be puffed up, that you may be proud or full of pride in favor of one against another, one pastor against another, one church member against another, one person against another. Uh, but again, the problem is Paul's writing this because they, they were puffed up. They, they, pride had come in like an unseen wrecking ball and was wreaking havoc in the family. So those are Paul's two purpose statements that our submission to the Father's voice would cultivate a humble posture in us as it relates to our regard for church leaders, for ourselves, for receiving correction. Now, I want to say up front, just full disclaimer, I understand that this sermon is going to sound repetitive in some ways from last week. Some of you may even be sitting there this morning like, does John, does he, do, do, like, do pastors work? Did John, did John work this week? Like, it just kind of sounds like we're repeating from some themes from last week. Let me show you where that, that comes from. And this is not me, like, giving myself an out. But just look at verse 17 real quick. Uh, uh, Paul says, guys, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Why? To remind, to remind, remind, repeat again, repeat again, repeat again, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So, just full disclaimer, it's going to feel like a reminder or a repeat of chapters 1, 2, and 3 if you've been around for those. I just want to encourage you not to tap out, and here's why. The reality is most of Scripture is actually a reminder. Most of Scripture is repetitive. There's very little original content in Scripture once all the initial original content is given from the Lord to people. Like, there it is, and then the rest of Scripture unfolds it and amplifies it and clarifies it, and then we get a little more revelation. But it's repeated, and it's, it's repetitive, and it's a reminder for our good. Why? Well, God as our Father knows what? We are, just like your kids, we're forgetful. We forget. So dad repeats himself. We need the repetition. It's good for us. But we don't only forget we have these hearts with rebel tendencies that turn. We tend to turn. So our dad's like, yo, you're turning again, so I'm going to repeat myself. I'm going to tell you what I told you again or what I told you yesterday. I'm going to give it to you again today. So the, re the repetition is on purpose. Repetition communicates to us that something is really important to our dad. So if we're seeing recurring themes in one to four, uh, rather than tapping out, we should be leaning in like, wow, this really, really, really means something to our Father. It should probably mean something to us. And finally, when we see repetition, here's what we really need to clue on. Rather than saying, man, these people just don't get it. Like, what's wrong with the church in Corinth? Why does Paul just have to keep repeating these themes? Rather than saying that, we should be saying, we really don't get it, do we? Like, we're really slow to get this stuff. It's amazing that God is so patient with us. But look at our Father. He, he said this in chapter 1. He's repeating himself again and again. But he's still calling us his deeply loved kids. Guys, in Scripture, there is a direct correlation to repetition and the likelihood that we are being or doing the very opposite of the thing that God is repeating. So when we see the repetition, it's almost as if our senses should go up and be like, man, if God's repeating himself so much here, the likelihood that I actually pretty regularly live out the opposite of what he's saying again and again is pretty high. It's pretty high. But there's something also important here about the posture with which this thing is written. All of this letter, but especially chapter 4, is written with the posture of a loving dad. Notice verse 14. Paul says, guys, listen, listen, fam. Like, I'm, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed. Uh, I'm not writing to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Guys, our Father does not peddle guilt or shame within His family. They're not motivators for our growth. Uh, guilt and shame have no place in the life of God's family. We are motivated by His grace and the beauty of the gospel. And that's what He's saying. I'm not writing to shame you. I'm writing because I love you for your good to admonish you. Now, we don't use, anybody use admonish in your vocabulary? Like, did it make it to any of your posts this week? Don't use it, do we? Okay, so admonish means two things, to warn and to correct. That's it. So Paul's saying, guys, I'm writing to, uh, to, to warn you and to correct your behavior. They needed the warning, right? First four chapters. So clearly, we need the warning too. It's just as likely that pride is swinging through like an unseen wrecking ball in our family as it is, as it was in their family. Guys, it's just as likely that pride, unbeknownst to you, is swinging through your life 
and your heart and your relationships like an unforeseen wrecking ball just absolutely wreaking havoc. It was in the church. So it's a warning, and we need the warning, but admonish also means to correct. And um, one of the guys I learned from and follow in social media, a guy by the name of Kurt Kennedy, he tweeted out this week, he said, he said, you know what I'm learning? I'm learning that God does not expose my sin to show me what I am not. I'm learning that God exposes my sin as His Son to show me what He has saved me to be. Guys, that's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm writing to you, family. You, you are deeply loved sons and daughters. I'm not writing to shame you into changing. I'm writing with a posture of love to remind you of God's grace and to show you exactly who He has created us to be so that by His grace and through His strength, we live into that reality. The family that exists for our Father's fame and for the good of other people at great cost to ourselves because we get it. It's not about us. So being gospel formed as a family, becoming who we are in submission to our Father's voice will cultivate a humble posture. But if we are not formed by our Father's voice as a church family and as as individual people, we will be formed by a competing voice in our rebel hearts or by the competing voices in our culture. And at the root of all of those voices, the voice box, if you will, for all of those voices is pride. And that's what Paul's pointing to here. So we will either have humility or pride in regard to the leaders in the church, in regard to ourselves and the way we think about ourselves, and in regard for correction that is given to us. So let's begin where Paul does with uh, our regard for church leaders, whether it's rooted in pride or humility. And we see that all in verse 1 to 6. Paul opens up with this question because the church was struggling with with this idea. So he says, guys, how should we regard leaders in Jesus' church? And he gives two very quick answers, right? Easy to remember. They both start with us. We should view leaders in God's church as servants and as stewards. And Paul's more specific than that. He says they're servants of Christ. So a good reminder for us that church leaders, um, Paul was an apostle, but he, he had a pastoral function. So he's writing for all pastors that would follow him. We don't have apostles anymore, but for all pastors in the church, that church leaders ultimately belong to Jesus. They're servants of Christ, not servants of the church first, but as a servant of Christ who exists for Christ's fame and the good of his people, they give their lives to the church. But again, ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, not to the church. It's, so the church doesn't own the pastors and the pastors don't own, own the church. They exist for Jesus. And this word servant, it actually means assistant. I, I really love this because it's another reminder, and we see reminders like this all through the New Testament, that Jesus is alone, alone is the one true pastor, like capital P pastor of any church. All other people who are given the um, title or office of pastor by a church are nothing more than assistant pastors to Jesus. No lead pastors. We should just change the way we talk about it all. Any pastor is, is only ever an assistant pastor to the work of Jesus. Now, this will sound a little funny if you're visiting because you're looking around and you're like, this is a pretty small family. And yeah, we are. We are a pretty small family. And there were about as many of you, maybe a little bit more in the hour before, and then a third of you are on vacation because it's the 96 right now. So we're, we're small as churches go. But um, you ready for this? We have 11 pastors here. And we're all assistants. We all assist the work of Jesus. Jesus is the pastor, and we assist that work. And we have 11 because we really want to take seriously what Jesus calls us to, that we are responsible to care for his people. And so our our people are spread out geographically, and so the aim is to have pastoral representation in each major area of this island where our people live. But if you're going to make Pillar Church your home, just understand that we are all assistant pastors, and the one true capital P pastor is Jesus himself. This word also means subordinate with special responsibility. So it means assistant, and this word servant also means a subordinate with special responsibility. And what is that special responsibility that a pastor has? Very simply stated, it is to point to Jesus over and over again. 
The pastors fulfill this responsibility a couple different ways. I like to remember them uh, this way. Uh, pastors have a prophetic role and a priestly role and a kingly role. And what I mean by that is pastors are called to use their voice prophetically to speak against the claims of the culture and against the rebel claims of our heart and to point people to Jesus. A faithful pastor is not pointing people to the right or to the left, to the Republican Party or to the Democrat, not to a ticket or to a platform. In fact, if we are speaking prophetically from God's word, there will be, we don't have a political home. We're politically homeless. There will be uh, aspects of the gospel that really fly in the face of uh, whatever claims are on the right, and there will be aspects of the gospel that really upset claims on the left. And so a faithful pastor is not trying to point you to a political home. A faithful pastor is speaking prophetically to point you to Jesus, our one true king. And there's a priestly role. Pastors are called by Jesus himself to care for the souls of people. That's our lane. That's the lane that we run, and we care for souls. Um, Caring by bringing Jesus to people and by um, gently bringing people to Jesus. And then the kingly role, simply meaning that as a team of pastors, it's our responsibility to lead our family to live on Jesus' mission for his fame and for the good of other people. Servants. The other word that Paul uses is stewards. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, if you've been around and we've been in 1 Corinthians, you've seen that this idea of the mysteries of God speaking to the, the beautiful gospel, uh, just the beauty of the gospel that is unfolded and that we learn of in Scripture. So we are, we are stewards of the, mis- of the gospel. A steward, again, that's just not a word that we really use in our vocabulary, except for maybe one place, and what would that be? Steward, stewardess, maybe, on an airplane. But that has nothing to do with what the word meant. Then a steward was somebody who essentially had delegated authority and responsibility to manage an entire estate in the absence of the Lord, if you will, of that estate. So a steward was responsible to care for a Lord's people, a Lord's place, and a Lord's purpose. And so that's what Paul's saying here. A pastor is a, a steward or a household manager, if you will, who by Jesus is given a certain measure of authority and responsibility to care for Jesus' people to care for Jesus' place, kind of the systems and structures of, of life together as a family, and to provide oversight so that we as a family are engaging um, in Jesus' purpose for us, like embracing why we exist. We, we all are stewards of the gospel. And then Paul says, here's the requirement for stewards. Uh, they should be found faithful. Now remember what we talked about last week, Jesus takes care of results. You're not called to produce results in anything. We as God's people are called to faithfulness in the reps, in the reps of life. So here for pastors, it would be uh, putting in the reps of what it means to be a servant and putting in the reps of what it means to be a steward. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. They, they do the daily gospel reps. The weight of producing results does not rest on pastor's shoulders, nor do, does that weight rest on the shoulders of any member of the family. But when churches are not gospel formed, they tend to assign value to church leaders based on those results. So uh, a good pastor produces results, and a pastor who seemingly is not producing results, at least that our eyes can see, that's dangerous, right? We don't see them, so we're assuming, well, that pastor does not have any value to God or to God's family. Or we assign value based on our preferences, based on a pastor's preaching style or a pastor's personality. Man, I really like that pastor. Man, that pastor is really off-putting to me. Or to a pastor's uh, politics or fill, fill in the blank, whatever preference it is that we bring to the equation. And the last thing that we actually use to assess would be that one statement where, where, where Jesus says it's simply required of stewards that they be found faithful. So recognizing that tendency, and by tendency I mean that we as churches and um, pastors too, we, we're actually the worst at it. Pastors are so bad at com- <clears throat> comparing themselves to other pastors ranking their, comparing their sermon. I mean, just comparing everything. Uh, that's, but don't we all have that root of pride in our hearts regardless of our vocation? Like it's this constant tension with comparison. And so recognizing that tendency and that that's exactly what's going on with the church in Corinth, Paul writes this in verse 4. 
He's like, fam, I just need to remind you, it is the Lord, it's Jesus who judges me. It's Jesus who judges me. In other words, that's not your role to judge me in this way. Now, let me just make this clear. The word judge, Paul is not talking about accountability, okay? A pastor is not only accountable to his church family and to the other pastors in a church, he should kind of be the, the lead example of what it looks like to be accountable to a family. That's, that's what we practice as a, as a church family, right? We are accountable to each other before Jesus. And so a pastor should be uh, very public and saying, this is my life and this is my teaching. Look at it, examine it. And if you see any inconsistency in my life uh, with the gospel, I want you to, to come to me. And if you come to me and I reject you, you need to bring another person. And if I reject both of you, uh, what I want you to do is to go to the rest of the elders and say to them, hey, um, Ron, Grant, Zach, Zach, and the others, right? <laughs> Eleven of them. Guys, man, I, I went to John, and we see this inconsistency in his teaching or his social media posts or fill in the blank in his life and the way he treats his family, and he did not respond well to me um, I need help. And they should take that responsibility to come to me and have those difficult conversations. So Paul is not talking about accountability. Pastors are never above the family. They submit to the very family that they shepherd. What he's talking about is evaluation or assessment, right? Assessment of worth or assessment of production. And he's he's saying, guys, uh, that's Jesus lane. Like Jesus, that's Jesus' responsibility. And not only is it his responsibility, look at verse five. He says, don't do it. Uh, Don't be attempted to assess any given pastor's value or contribution. And here's two reasons why. First, only Jesus has the authority, right? They're his servants. But secondly, in this verse, only Jesus has the ability, right? Because there is only so much we can see. There is only so much we can know. But what does it say about Jesus? Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden. Not only is there stuff about me that's hidden from you, there is stuff about myself that is hidden from myself. Can we say it that way? Our hearts are complicated. Our motives are always mixed, never pure. So Jesus will bring to the light the things now hidden, and he will disclose, disclose the purposes of the heart. So only Jesus has the ability to accurately assess any person's heart to include pastors. And so Paul is saying, hey, we need to back off this tendency uh, and we got to recognize it that when our, heart, when, our, when our church is collectively kind of formed more by the culture or by the pride in our hearts than it is by the gospel, here's our temptation, and it's really dangerous, and it's a role that belongs only to Jesus, and he's the only one who has this ability anyway. And so when Jesus brings things to light, it says he will commend or praise each church leader according to their faithful reps, not their results. That's why Paul says in verse 3, he says, man, it's a, it's a really small thing. If I'm judged by you or by anyone else, any other court, because I'm not working for your approval, I'm not defined by your approval or your lack of it. And look, Paul says, look, I'm not being arrogant about this because uh, look at his own self-assessment. He says, I don't even really place any weight on my own self-assessment of myself. He goes, like, I'm not really currently aware of any failures as a servant or a steward or a shepherd right now. Like, I'm not aware of areas I'm actively failing. Uh, My conscience is relatively clear, but even that's not enough for me to just pronounce this assessment of value over my, like, look at at how well I'm doing as a pastor. That's only for Jesus to do. He says, I feel like I'm good to go, but I don't even really trust my own heart here. I'm probably not. But I don't know, and and you as a church family, you definitely don't know because you can't see my heart and you can't see, there are so many things you can't see, but Jesus does. Jesus does. A humble posture is to entrust that role to Jesus and to resist the temptation to rack them and stack them and and rank rank leaders in the church. So a couple takeaways from this. Uh, The first for us as a family, guys, no pedestals for any of our pastors. Um, No pedestals for any of our pastors, none. We can, in a healthy way, respect the role and the responsibilities of a pastor. We can and we should, as a family, submit to the delegated authority of pastors. In the same way, I would would encourage you, in the same way that I am called to submit to the 10 other men who serve as pastors in our family, and I do. In fact, I'll just be honest with you. I had a guy pushing with me on social media a little bit. He messaged me privately, and he said, hey, this area you're teaching, and then fill in the blank, it's inconsistent with the gospel. I said, all right, um, I don't agree with you, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose not to engage with you in this because I feel like your accusation is really over the top. Um, you're welcome to explain it to me, and I will honor, it, honor you by reading it, but I'm not going to engage back. But here's what I want you to do, and here's exactly what I told him. I said, I, if you really do feel this way, sincerely, 
please, and I said, I said, please, get in touch with the rest of the pastors of our church in an email. Like, I'm giving you permission. I'm giving you the freedom. Please write exactly what you're telling me. Please explain to them. I submit myself to them in all areas of life. Let's let them adjudicate this concern, and I will submit to whatever they say. That's what it looks like in a church family, guys. So it's not just for me as a pastor. Like, that's for all of us in a healthy family. So no pedestals for pastors. But also, and, and also no ultimate allegiance to any pastor. No fanboys, no ranking. Pastors exist only to point people to Jesus. And Jesus is the only one in our family who belongs on a pedestal. That's why nothing but assistant pastors. Jesus alone on the pedestal. It's misplaced pride that puts pastors on pedestals, right? We've all had that pastor we absolutely loved, and we put him up on a pedestal, right? This fantastic pastor. But that's misplaced pride in our heart because we, we, should kinda, we should have that kind of feeling toward Jesus, not towards an assistant pastor who exists to serve Jesus. But it also could be misplaced pride in the heart of a pastor. A lot of pastors, again, the temptation exists in all of us, me included, is to put our, ourselves up on a pedestal and say, look at me. Look at the things that I'm doing. No pedestals. Misplaced pride puts That pride divides God's family. That pride distorts and destroys the purpose for which we exist. There's a kind of a common um, title in our culture now. It's called celebrity pastor. Have you ever heard of that before? Guys, wow. Like we actually use that term and, and mean it. Um, but that's exactly what Paul's talking about. So no celebrity pastors. In fact, Jesus' church is better off without celebrity pastors. Jesus' church is better off with average pastors who remain relatively nameless, just faithfully doing um, gospel reps in average ways, pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. Uh, Paul's very clear here. Leaders are servants. Not to be ranked. No one pastor is better. Different gifts and different areas of responsibility, sure. Um, but the same value across the board. Servants and stewards who exist to serve Jesus by serving our family prophetically, priestly, and kingly. We are all lowercase p pastors who exist for the fame of the one true and better pastor. That's Jesus. So this is his church. It doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to any one of the other assistant pastors on our team, if you will. Um, if you've been around just a little while, you know I took quite a bit of, I took a break. I didn't preach for about seven weeks or so, which is unusual because my area of responsibility does mean that I, I preach more than the other pastors who have other areas of responsibility. So I had lunch with one of my Okinawan pastor friends a week or so ago, and John Simberger was there, the guy who'd done most of the preaching in my absence. And so Kaz is like, yo, aren't your people confused? Like, when you start preaching again, and be like, is it Simberger's church? Is it John's church? Like, whose church is it? And I rather glibly replied, which is kind of pride. So, but anyway, I like, just kind of glibly replied, uh, no, no confusion. Like, it's not my church, and it's not John's church. Like, this is Jesus' church, and any person could get up here and speak on behalf of Christ to us. Jesus is the one who remains on the pedestal. So, guys, becoming who we are that united family with a powerful witness will happen only as our submission to the Father's voice cultivates a humble posture in our regard for our church leaders. All right, now we're going to transition to ourselves, and some of you are glad because you're like, I don't have that problem. Like, John is definitely not on a pedestal here. Got it. Like, I'd never put that guy on a pedestal, so let's move on. Fine, fair. Um, but we're going to move on to an area that gets really personal, okay? Because now Paul is going to transition to talking about not just our regard for church leaders, but our regard for self. Notice in verse 6, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for whose benefit? For yours? For the church? Why? Because they were a church that was divided with a root of pride because of their view of, le their view of leaders was shaped by the culture and not by the gospel, but it wasn't just their view of leaders. Their view of themselves was shaped more by the culture than it was by the gospel. And that's why Paul had to write in verse 6 that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, meaning they were puffed up. Like pride had just swung in like a wrecking ball and they didn't even know. So in regards to ourselves. So Paul begins this section in verse 7 with three questions. Um, they're forward questions. Here's the first one. Who... Who do you guys think that you are anyway? It's worded a little differently. It says, for who sees anything different in you? And that was Paul's way of asking, like, who do you think you are? Like, who has said to you something that makes you feel like you're in some elevated position that would allow you to assess and evaluate the worth 
or the value or the legitimacy of the pastors in a church. And who, who, in, who in the world do you think you are that you could do that and that you would actually be willing to compare yourselves against each other? Well, I'm a better Christian. I'm a stronger Christian. I'm a more mature Christian. She's a weaker Christian. I serve in this way. They don't, all they do is really show up and consume. Like all these different ideas. Who do you think you are? And then the, the second question, Paul's saying, but seriously though, what do you have that you did not receive from Jesus? What do, you ha- what do you have? What do you bring to the equation that you self-generated? And the answer to that would be n- uh, nothing. And so question three follows. And if you received what you have from Jesus and you did, why are you bragging on yourself? Guys, the minute we brag on any one pastor in the church or the church itself or ourselves, those three expressions are merely symptoms. And if we trace the root all the way back, it is, it is to a root of pride in our heart. Misplaced pride. You should have pride. That, that is God-given. We should have pride in the better words and works of Jesus. So we brag on Jesus. But when our pl- pride is misplaced, it ends up on a leader in the church or people in the church or ourselves, and that destroys the unity of a family and takes us off mission. But Paul's not done. He gives us these questions. And now... Um, d- were you a little uncertain kind of when you heard the next few verses read talking about how you're rich and you have everything in your kings and all that? Um, let me just kind of uh, help us process all, all that. This may come as a bit of a surprise to you. This next paragraph is nothing but sarcasm. It is Paul using sarcasm to call out the pride in this church. Because look at what he says. Already you have all you want. Look at you. You're killing it. You're amazing. Uh, Has anybody ever watched Remember the Titans? And Denzel Washington's role, which is just fantastic in there, but how he sometimes just calls out his boys, just this mocking, clapping going on. Like, look at you. You're killing it. And so their their view of themselves is that they had everything they want. So Paul was pointing at them and saying, look, you are living... Uh, your, your kids, you, your, your children of God, you're adopted and your kids, so you should have this needy posture towards him, but you're living like your view of yourself would communicate. You've got everything you need. You've got everything you want. Look at you. And then his second statement, already you've become rich. Incredible. Look at you go. Again, just kind of repeating himself, but sarcasm. They had no independent wealth in life, if you will. We're not talking about money. We're talking about status and place in the faith and place in the family. And then his third and maybe most sarcastic comment, just kind of the, the peak here, is like, guys, without us, you have already become kings. You know what I think he's pointing to when he makes, like, none of them were kings, none of them were queens, but kings and queens are entitled people. And so he's pointing to them and saying, you are living with such a sense of entitlement and your pride. You're living as though you're a king or you're a queen. And by the way, I wish I had no, like, I wish you would have brought me along because I would love to be entitled with you. I would love to be reigning with you. This is just sarcasm from Paul. Look at you. And look at how subtly pride has crept in. And how entitlement has just kind of slipped into your relationships and your view of your pastor. You deserve better than what this guy brings. And how entitlement has slipped into your view of the church. So now we approach church as what, what can I get out of this community rather than with the idea that I am a servant and I exist for Jesus' fame by existing for the good of the... Look at how subtly entitlement actually slips into the way that we critique a church. It's entitlement. You guys are living like kings and queens, he says. He's actually quoting kind of pop culture statements here. Here's one that was more or less taken out of a diary from this town in this, in this day and age. And this was, this was but it was a, a statement in the, like, so this would have been on a billboard or in a top 40 song, right? Or this is it. And it goes, who when he lays eyes upon me does not feel as though he is looking at his king, right? What a pretentious statement. I'm glad my heart never says anything like that as I walk out the door. So that was common. Another historian said that imagining oneself to be filled, rich, and reigning, the three things that Paul accused them of, was a widespread fantasy in our culture. Amazing how nothing changes in 2,000 plus years, yeah? Nothing. We do the same from our songs to our social media to our self-talk. You got this. You're a king, man. You're a queen. You're a boss. You're going to kill this. 
Now, look, we're not knocking self-talk. Self-talk is very important. But if you ever want to see where the heart of a culture or a church or a person is at, all you got to look at is our self-talk. What are we telling ourselves? So our dad wants us to be rocking self-talk. Around here, we tend to call it like gospel rehearsal, rehearsing gospel identity. Self-talk is merely us as God's kids repeating to ourselves and to each other all of the beautiful stuff that God says over us as our father, our identity, our purpose, all these things. The, heart, the, the voice of self-talk, though, will reveal where our heart is at. And obviously, the self-talk for this family was revealing that they were not speaking uh, God's gospel truths over themselves. And so Paul now, he, he's got to display this for them. And so he says, look, I'm going to contrast a gospel-formed view of self with a culture-formed view of self. And here's how I'm going to do it right here. He begins by saying that God placed himself and the other, depo- other apostles on display, like right here as exhibit A for Christians to look at so that they would have an example of what a gospel-formed life looks like. So that's all he does. He kind of stacks that example up against the way that they're living and talking. And so what does Paul say about himself? What does a gospel-formed view of self sound like? See how it starts? As last of all. As last of all. Like Jesus, who positioned himself to be last least and lowest for the Father's fame and the good of other people. That doesn't mean that a Christian cannot occupy a place of great authority. That's not at all what Paul is saying. It's fantastic to have Christians in influential positions. That's fantastic. Paul is talking about the posture with which we take in any position of life, whether it is high or low, that the gospel forms a heart that approaches um, all responsibility and all authority by placing ourselves as the lowest and the least and the last for our Father's fame and for the good of others. Last of all, the second thing he says is we are like men sentenced to death. That sounds really morbid, but it's a beautiful gospel theme. In all of the gospel, death to life is the pathway. So for Jesus, uh, the death of Christ brought about the life of every member in the family. Now, as adopted in members of the family, well, to get it to be adopted in, the Bible would tell us, it is death to our rebel self and rebel ways and life in Christ. It's always death to life. And now that we're in the family... Jesus daily calls us to, what did he say? Take up your cross and follow me. It's still the same pattern, a pattern of daily self-denial and death, not only for personal life in Christ, but death to self, life for those who are not yet adopted in. This is a beautiful gospel theme, like men sentenced to death. And then he says, a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Why are they a spectacle? Well, this is, I mean, we're seeing this. Culture then was no different than culture now. And what's at the heart of the culture? You orient your, your life around your heart. You do you. Self-actualization matters to us. Self-fill-in-the-blank. Self-fulfillment. Self-realization. Self-actualization. Self-fill-in-the-blank. Fill-in-the-blank. Fill-in-the-blank. Guys, Jesus couldn't be more clear in the gospel that that orientation in life is a rebel orientation. The gospel reorients our hearts around Jesus. And so it is so radically different than the culture that Paul uses the word spectacle. We become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, when our lives, which in rebellion were radically oriented around me and what I want, are now radically reoriented around Jesus, followed by a death to self, followed by the good for those who are not yet adopted in. It will make us a spectacle family. And guys, that is exactly how we will become who we are, a united family around Jesus with a powerful witness. No shortcuts. There's no other way. That is the gospel pattern that we would view ourselves as last of all, like men sentenced to death, and embrace this reality that a heart and a family reoriented on Jesus will be a spectacle to the world. But you know what? Some will slander the spectacle and talk down to it, and that's okay, but that will be the most winsome and beautiful spectacle that the world has ever seen, and it's that spectacle that the Father will use here in Okinawa and other communities to adopt other people into his family. And Paul keeps going, kind of puts him in this this comparison line for line now. So he says, gospel formed would be to view yourself as a fool for Christ's sake. Culture formed, you think of yourself as wise. Gospel formed, we are weak. In other words, view yourself as a child who constantly needs something from your dad. Culture formed, you think of yourself as strong. I got this. I'm independent. I'm autonomous. I can do this on my own. Gospel formed, I take the position of disrepute, the lowest position for the good of others. 
culture formed. I've got to work for the position of honor, and it's something that I've got to protect for myself. Gospel formed, nothing to protect. I gladly give up the position of honor, gladly step into the position of disrepute. It's not about me. It's about the fame of Jesus and the good of others. So guys, with that brief comparison of gospel-formed heart, gospel-formed church, culture-formed heart, culture-formed church, how are we thinking about ourselves this week, family? Like, where are we at in our self-talk and and the way that we're viewing ourselves? How do we posture ourselves toward others? The comparison, you'll be glad to know, stops there. For some of us, you're like, man, that's good, because that was starting to get a little too personal and a little too uncomfortable. And now Paul just kind of moves on to recount the journey how these postures had expressed themselves in his own personal journey, verses 11 to 13. And there are kind of two themes to see here. The first theme is sacrifice for Jesus' fame and the joy of others in the gospel. And the second theme is just, again, this revisiting a description of gospel-formed humility. Look at this first theme. Paul says it this way, verse 11 or 12. Um, Yeah, 11. To the present hour we hunger and thirst We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. So that's Paul's personal experience of what it looked like to sacrifice deeply for Jesus' fame and the good of others. It's going to look differently for every one of you in here. So this is not a guilt trip verse to say that if you are not homeless and hungry all the time, you're clearly not following Jesus well. That's not what Paul's doing. He's just saying, this is what it's led to for me. But it will be personally expressed and different for every one of us, but the same heart will be there. The gospel-formed heart lives with a posture of um, willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. It doesn't go running after suffering. That's not what Paul's talking about. But when suffering comes, it welcomes that suffering insofar as it is a part of living a life of self-denial for Jesus' fame and the good of others. And then check out this description of gospel-formed humility as it expresses itself relationally. Paul says, when, rev- when reviled, we bless. Let's just apply that to our social media lives or our interpersonal relationships. That's crazy, right? Culture-formed would say, when you're reviled, revile back with a, with a louder voice and with more hurtful words. And if you don't believe me, well, y'all, y'all watched the debate a couple weeks ago. That was exhibit A of when um, reviled, we don't bless. We reviled back. That is our cultural language and our cultural value. But the gospel flips that on its head and says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we get out of bed and we endure. We trust Jesus. When slandered, we entreat. There's a word we don't use a lot. It just means to speak in an encouraging way. Is that crazy, right? So for those people who are actively slandering you in your life right now, the culture would say, slander them back. Destroy them or cancel them. One or the other. Destroy or cancel. Jesus says, say kind things about them. Wish them well. Pray for them. Like sincerely. Exist for their good. Guys, that's what makes the church, when we are gospel formed, a crazy spectacle to the world. And then Paul says, we have become and we are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. He uses a couple words in there that kind of borderline profane just to say uh, where his journey has taken him. But when he says that, he's basically just writing that down to, 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 to tell his family, and it's okay that we're here. Like we're okay in this place because our value comes from Jesus. Our worth comes from Jesus. So it doesn't matter how my peers view me or how the culture views me. It just doesn't matter. I'm, I rest, I am so deeply at rest in what Jesus has said over me that I'm, I'm okay in this place. I'm, I'm okay right here. And so family, I think the diagnostic question we've got to ask ourselves, if we are in that place, is it okay with us? Like, is it okay with us for us to be right there? And now like a dad, Paul says, remember, I'm not writing these things to shame you. You are my deeply loved kids. I'm writing to warn you and to call you back to your purpose. I want you to receive this warning. It's for your good. And so guys, in our, in our third idea, I regard for correction, a gospel-formed church or person receives and responds to correction and then welcomes it again and welcomes it again because we know it is for our good. But a culture-formed heart rejects correction. You don't know me like that. You can't speak into my life like that. And Paul, Paul says this, he says, guys, you have countless guides in Jesus, countless guides. 
And guides aren't bad. Paul's saying guides are, guides are good. In this culture, a guide was kind of a glorified nanny or babysitter, somebody who was present in the absence of a parent. So he's saying like, you guys, I'm, I've been gone a while. You've had lots of guides. Lots of pastors have come along, lots of people in the church. For us, in our context now, we have tons of guides. We've got tons of, um, of, of guides. We have podcasts and we have books and we have blogs and we have social media. So if you want to ingest a lot of content that encourages your heart to be gospel formed. It's all at your fingertips. Tons of guides. But you know what the difference between a guide and a father is that Paul's talking about here? A guide and a parent? None of those guides are in your life. None of those guides are personally invested in you. And Paul's saying, like, you got a lot of guides, and that's good, but I'm your father. Uh, kind of back to remember the Titans. Remember that bus scene where he's getting all the players on the bus? Like, who's your daddy? Like, this is just Paul's way of saying, like, guys, I, I'm your dad. Uh, I love you. My heart bleeds for you. And that's why I'm writing. I am invested deeply in you. I'm committed to your well-being in Christ. I'm enduring. I'm not going anywhere. I'm your father. And as your dad, I'm writing all of this for your good. I love you and I urge you to be imitators of me. That's Paul's way of signaling to the church family that all of this stuff that he said about himself is not just for the apostles or the pastors. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful, this is who God has created us to be, guys. This is the reality that God wants you to live into this week. Be imitators of me. So Paul's a servant of Jesus. That's his identity and purpose. What's your identity and purpose? You are a servant of Jesus. You exist to serve Jesus. That is a beautiful privilege. You exist to be a steward of the gospel. When you walk out those doors as a deeply loved son or a daughter, you are Jesus' servant, and you go with the life-giving beauty of the gospel. He has entrusted you with the privilege of managing or stewarding that gospel. Paul says to imitate him in being a fool for Christ's sake, to be okay in acknowledging our weakness and just say, I, I don't have what I need within me. I need Jesus. That we would not brag on our perceived strengths, but that we'd recognize that everything is a gift that we would imitate him by viewing ourselves as the lowest, least, and last for Jesus' fame and the good of others. And Paul says, some of you are acting arrogantly as though I'm not coming home. But I'm coming home soon. I was reading that this week and I had a couple shivers go down my spine because those are very familiar words to me. Not from Paul's mouth, but from my mom's mouth. I'm like, John, Athen, she called me Jonathan. I'm done with you today but your dad's coming home in about 45 minutes. <laughs> Dad is coming home soon. We all knew exactly what that meant. Guys, that, that is what Paul is saying. And he says, I'm going to find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Basically saying, I'm going to find out if there's any real substance to what they're saying. I know there's not. They're the root of all of this is pride, but we're going to talk about it. But here's, all the, here's what he has to say about talk. Verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but power, power from the Spirit. Guys, our lives does not consist in the emptiness of our talk, our proud talk, our self-inflated talk, or our promoting talk, but in the power of the Spirit. And the, the, power that is, that the, the, the power the Spirit brings to our life produces a different kind of talk. It's a confessing talk. And if the confessing talk is true, it is followed by a pattern of slowly changing life in conformity to Jesus. They had a lot to confess, family. But remember, the repetition is not for the church in Corinth today. Like the repetition is for John Ransom's heart and your heart and our collective heart as a church. So all of this stuff that is leading them to confess, what about us? Have we asked the Spirit to work in a powerful way to change our own hearts? We ask Him to change our circumstances all the time, maybe. What about changing our own hearts? What about changing our view of ourselves, our view of our leaders? What about changing our view of correction so that we would go from loathing it and escaping it to actually seeking it out and welcoming it? What about confessing that there are many aspects of our life, individually and as a church, that have been formed more by the culture than the gospel? What about confessing that we don't position ourselves daily as needy kids to be formed by our Father's voice? What about confessing that we really don't ask God to cultivate humility in us? What about confessing us that we don't really believe that it's not about us? Paul closes with a question that's really meaningful for us. He says, hey, fam, like, what, do you guys, what do you guys want? 
What do you want? Do you want me to come to you with a rod? Correction? Discipline? Or do you want me to come with a love, with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, obviously, Paul was not going to show up and start beating them. That's not what he's saying. But their conversations would be radically different. Do you want me to show up with discipline or with love in a spirit of gentleness? <sighs> Guys, Paul's not going to walk into here today or next week. I mean, if he does show up, you should probably get your heart really quick. But like, Paul's not going to be in here. Father leaves us with the very same question. And so the question for us today is, will we, we respond to his gentle warning today or we, will we invite his fatherly discipline tomorrow? But still the same question. And that's our question today. Will we be humble enough to receive the correction today or we will, will we invite his discipline tomorrow? So family, let's take that invitation from our, our, our kind and gentle and patient father. And let's, let's confess. Let's, let's just do it. Let's, let's honor our father and agree with him that the words he's spoken over us today are true personally and as a church we have nothing to hide we got nothing to hide yes i struggle with pride yes it manifests itself by comparing myself against other pastors who are seemingly more productive or fruitful yes we struggle with pride and comparing against each other yes we struggle with pride and not posturing ourselves as needy kids before our father Yes, we struggle with pride and thinking this whole church thing is more about us than the people who are outside the doors. Yes, we struggle more with our personal public. We care more about what people think about ourselves than we care about what people actually think about Jesus. I mean, we could just keep going. Paul's right. Jesus is right. So we have nothing to hide. Let's step into the grace that God gives us as deeply loved kids. No shame, no guilt. But, but let's actually confess these things as a family. And in confessing, Ask the Father through the Spirit to form in us this gospel-shaped culture so that we are a united family around Jesus. Because if we don't unite around Jesus, we will divide over every secondary thing there is. United around Jesus with a powerful witness for the good of the people who are outside of these doors. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. So Kyle now, as one of our assistant pastors, is going to come and uh, he's just going to lead our family in a prayer of confession. And so I want to encourage you to, to join him and, and in a personal confession to the Father, and then uh, join Kyle's voice in a, in a kind of a shared confession for the family. Thanks, Kyle.